This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to the Money Markets Podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and boy, it's been a very, very busy week. Today, I'm joined by Danny Hewson. Hi, Danny. Hello there, Dan. Yeah, there's just one or two things troubling markets this week. We're recording on Wednesday ahead of the latest US and UK interest rate decisions and the UK government's mini budget. Yeah, we've had a barrage of bad news for markets with profit warnings coming in thick and fast, including Hilton Foods, the Hutt Group, DFS and the biggie, the bellwether stock FedEx. We have had some good news for UK businesses with the details of the government's six-month energy price cap out today. Plus, have travel stocks turned a corner after an upbeat update from TUI? So you mentioned energy there, Danny. Well, cutting energy costs, becoming more efficient, is something I've been talking to Jonathan Maxwell from SDCL Energy Efficiency Income Trust about. And he's been telling me about the big opportunities he's seeing right now. And we couldn't end this episode of the Money and Markets podcast without a nod to Mike Ashley. Stepping down from the board of the Fraser's Group, we'll be taking a look back at what's been a somewhat controversial career. Well, let's kick off with a chat about interest rates. Yes, the impending interest rate decisions. They do always seem to create volatility, Dan. I know we're often talking about the volatility of ahead of rate hikes or, or rate falls on this programme. Rate hikes, obviously, over the last year have, have sort of been the thing that we've been talking about. Um, but is, is it just me or this time do markets... It feels like they haven't quite been able to settle on exactly how they expect things to go. We've got the Fed due to deliver its third 75 basis point hike in a row, or will it go for a full percentage point hike like the Swedish Central Bank did? Uh, Fed update out tonight, Wednesday night. We're recording this Wednesday lunchtime on the 21st, so just a few hours to go. And then tomorrow lunchtime, it's the turn of the Bank of England. And there have been big swings in terms of what markets are expecting. At the moment, looking at the probability factors, just over 70% are factoring in a 75 basis point rise to the UK base point, taking it to 2.5%. And that will be the steepest increase in 27 years. And we're talking about records all the time at the moment, Dan. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously, say, by the time you listen to this podcast, you'll know the uh, the exact details of those rate hikes. But I think what we're talking here is that these this isn't just it. You, you're going to have to expect these rates to keep going up. And I think, you know, the US and UK could be pushing, you know, 4% next year in terms of rates. Because um, you have to go back and think, you know, why, why are central banks doing this? They're doing it to try to combat inflation. So, I think traditionally, when we get um, sort of an interest rate decision, you would normally see a sort of a 0.25 percentage point move. But obviously, now we're seeing three to four times that amount. And you know, and I just think that you know, Sweden's lifted its rates, as you said, by four percentage points. You know, that's that's it's been many many years since it's been it's done such a, a high thing. And obviously, this is. This is uh, in response to inflation just being stickier. People thought that um, 
you know, inflation would be high, but it would start to come down. And, and I just think people are thinking, okay, it's going to be high for, for much longer than we previously thought, because that's feeding into consumers and businesses. So we've got the rise in borrowing costs make it more expensive um, for companies to service their debt. Consumers are sort of watching every penny they have now. And of course, that feeds into less spending, you know, whether it's a business investing in its, um, its, its goods and services, investing in its staff, or you know, the consumers you know, just spending less. Of course, that, that, that sort of therefore has a trickle effect. And we're now seeing lots and lots of corporate profit warnings. Um, you know, Danny, you mentioned Hilton Foods at start, so a food producer. I mean, this is sort of, you, you think that, um, you know, everyone has still got to eat, but it does show that a business like that can still have uh, a miss in terms of its earnings expectations. So, I mean, one of the things they were talking about was people cutting back on seafood and meat. And I, I don't know when, the, you know, when you do your weekly shop, you notice sort of a change in your shopping habits at all. I have to say that what has astounded me, I do a, an online shop and then would during the week have to pick up little bits and pieces. So I, I sort of know what my shop should be. And I have seriously been astonished that the amount I'm spending has not gone up by 25 quid, it's gone up by 50 quid. And these are the things that go into your favourites week after week after week. And I'm having to make changes to, to what I buy, definitely. So, I mean, clearly there are some problems with companies around the world. But I think the biggest warning sign that we've had in the last week or so is this profit warning from um, the logistics company FedEx. Now, FedEx is seen as a bellwether for the global economy. If it's now saying that volumes are declining, then you think, okay, something is clearly happening with the global economy. Um, and, and what it's saying is that the, the demand is weakening both internationally and in the US. So um, it's no wonder the stock market has had a bit of a wobble since FedEx came out with this warning. And of course, you know, whatever happens to FedEx, it's going to have a read across to companies that do very similar things. So we've seen share price weakness in UPS, in Royal Mail, and Deutsche Post. And of course, it's not just delivery stuff that's going on, uh, having problems. Have a look at the e-commerce space as well. We've got the German warehouse equipment maker, Kion, has issued a warning on its profits saying supply chain shortages and this big increase in raw material and energy prices. And it's very similar warning from robotics company Autostore talking about the same factors hurting itself. And of course, Autostore is the company that's been in a patent dispute with Ocado. So if you think if Autostore's having problems, what does that mean for Ocado's sort of technology solutions? Because just remember, Ocado isn't simply about sort of delivering your um, your food and drink to your house via its joint venture with Marks and Spencer. Its principal business is trying to sell uh, these systems, sort of robots that um, help other grocery companies do business around the world you know, with sort of online delivery. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's plenty more. This Ford's had a profit warning, talking about this extra billion dollars in costs. And, and I just think that this is going to spiral. You can just think that in the coming weeks, I'd brace yourself for some pretty ugly news. I had a quick look before we started recording this podcast just to see who's on the agenda to come out with some um, sort of results. We've got Nike's on the list for next Thursday, uh, as well as the retailer next. 
PepsiCo's got figures due out on the 12th of October, and Walgreens is coming out on the 13th. So just remember, just because they're scheduled to report, if they've got bad news, by law, with the stock market rules, they have to issue that straight away. So um, just be aware you've got some really big names that represent some very large sectors there. Uh, and let, you know, fingers crossed, they're not all going to come out with bad news. Because yeah, as you say, I mean, we had uh, a number of chip makers giving updates before they were supposed to because they were delivering bad news. And and I was um, taking a long look at food delivery stocks last week, and I noticed on Tuesday that a number of them on the FTSE were down significantly. And that is because investors are factoring in, if FedEx is struggling, what for companies like Deliveroo, Just Eat, you know, I mean, all of those companies, when you're talking about logistics, they're relying on, you know, people ordering a decent amount in their basket in order to make it cost effective. And consumers are cutting back. They have been cutting back because they're worried about, uh, you know, how far their money is going to stretch. Um, it One of the biggest costs, of course, for consumers and for businesses right now, something which is keeping an awful lot of company bosses up at night, UK energy costs, energy costs right around the world. But we have had today, Wednesday, ahead of the government's mini budget fiscal event. What are you calling it, Dan? Um, I think a mini budget is got to be the best description for it. <laughs> Whatever you call it, Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Chancellor, will be getting on his feet on Friday. And we are expecting a whole load of rabbits potentially coming out of the hat, but one rabbit which is already out of the hat are details of how UK businesses will be helped out with their energy bills. That was released today. And it basically is going to work in a, a sort of similar way to the price cap for UK households. And it does mean that energy bills for UK businesses are going to be cut by around half their predicted level this winter. It's not just businesses, of course, it's also hospitals, schools and charities. And Industry groups today have said, this is great, but there are a number of issues with this support. First of all, and this is the biggie, it is only for six months, although the scheme will be reviewed after three months with an option then to extend support for vulnerable businesses. Um, we don't yet know which sectors will come under that category. It does mean, however, that when you're talking about inflation, it is one of those costs that businesses were expecting that they won't have to bear quite as much weight. And therefore, hopefully, it means that they won't have to then pass that extra cost on to the consumer. And you were talking about huge numbers. I was just uh, reading this morning, the boss of Fuller's saying that uh, his energy bill looked like it was going to uh, more than double from um, uh, up by about £10 million. Uh, so clearly this is, is going to be good news for that pub chain. But he was saying that for him, he's more interested in other rabbits which might be pulled out of the hat on Friday. Uh, a VAT cut and a business rate cut. He's saying that for him, those things are 
things that would make the biggest impact to his business. Now, in terms of um, sales, they have held up. In fact, total sales in the week of 25 weeks to September the 17th were actually up 3% on pre-pandemic levels. But he did say that consumers face increasingly challenging times ahead. And of course, you know, for that sector, they're hoping that this Christmas is going to be a good one because it's the first restriction-free Christmas for three years. Can you believe it? I mean, you know, that that's an incredible stat. And there is the World Cup as well, which hopefully is going to make a difference to these businesses if people have enough money to spend. And, and that's what it's all about at the minute, Dan. It's about who's got the money to spend, how much can they pay, and what does it do to uh, businesses' margins? Well, you're talking about pulling rabbits out of the hat for the mini budget. Well, another one that has been speculated is we might get some sort of intervention on stamp duty. And as we record this podcast, shares in house building companies have sort of been moving up. Um, what exactly are the sort of the papers speculating at the moment? Um, at the moment, there's there's all kinds of speculation about exactly what that would be. Would there be an end to stamp duty entirely? Would there be a cut in stamp duty? Would there be another kind of holiday in the same way that uh, the stamp duty holiday was uh, increased temporarily during COVID to £500,000 to help stimulate the property market? As you say, you know, a potential cut would be good news for big developers and house builders, you know, whose stock market values have really tumbled this year because people have been really concerned that, you know, that incredible house buying market, which has been so vibrant and seen such an increase in house prices, would fall, would go pop as a recession looms and obviously interest rates um, rising increase mortgage costs. But we saw some substantial increases this morning. Um, Persimmon, the country's biggest house builder, was headed for its best session in four months. It was up 3.6%. Redrow was up 3% and 2% gains also for Barrett, Bellway and Taylor Wimpy. Now, there are big questions about exactly what any kind of intervention stamp duty would do to the housing market. We saw with the holiday that that what it did is it basically sped up people's house buying um, decision making. So it just increased house prices. The housing market went boom. And we haven't really seen that taper away just yet. Although, of course, with rate rises, we are now seeing signs of the housing market start to cool a little bit. But average house prices, you know, heading on to to £300,000 now, we've seen still the number of houses changing hands. Uh, 104,980 homes changed hands in August, which was 1% more than it was in July and 7.6% more than it was in August 2021. So there are big questions about exactly what the intervention would be, what it would do to the housing market and who stands to benefit. And I know, Dan, we were talking earlier about, you know, there being something of a logjam sometimes in the housing market because you've got people 
living in in huge five bedroom homes who are maybe looking to downsize and you've got families desperately needing to upsize and stamp duty cost in general gets in the way so there's been a lot of talk about maybe changes to stamp duty or getting rid of it altogether might be a good thing for the housing market but there are a huge number of questions and it's going to be really interesting to to get meat on the bones when we get the details on friday i think house builders are really looking for something that would help keep those transaction numbers ticking over so um even if the house prices don't jump up a lot um, as long as there's sort of just this constant flow of people buying and selling, I think that that would sort of signal a, a sort of healthier environment for them. And they've got lots of pressures on costs at the moment. You know, the, the cost of raw materials to build these houses has been going up. Um, so anything that, that would sort of favour and you know, make sure they avoid a situation where their sort of you know, sales um, figures are sort of slowing down in terms of, sort of the frequency of sales, it would be good. But I'm going to say. We'll get more details um, on that mini budget. Um, you know, probably as as you you listen to this, um, we should get those figures out, and we'll discuss that on a future podcast. Yeah, and Laura Souter from this parish and myself will be dissecting that mini budget fiscal event, whatever term you're calling it, uh, on another of our AJ Bell podcasts, Money Matters, which should be available early next week. Uh, Money Matters, if you've not come across it, is slanted towards helping women get more in tune with their finances. But we cover a whole range of topics, including our latest one, which was looking at house buying hacks, which anyone might find useful. Now, obviously, one of the most pressing issues for companies today is is how to keep a lid on these sort of cost pressures. And, um, you know, simply keeping the lights on is certainly costing more. And there are some obvious steps businesses can take. I've spoken to a number of businesses who are looking to change properties because the size of the property is too big. So by downsizing, it means that they use less energy. Uh, Here to explain more. Jonathan Maxwell, the manager of SDCL Energy Efficiency Income Trust. He runs an investment trust that puts money into projects that not only save companies a few quid, but also help the environment. Well, Jonathan, I think the first question would be, has the surge in energy prices this year encouraged more companies to think harder about energy efficiency? And if that's the case, is that actually sort of translated into a much bigger pool of investment opportunities for SDCL? Or do you think it might take some time before these opportunities emerge? I think um, these opportunities have been emerging for some time. If we look back over um, the last decade, it's actually there's always been an opportunity to cut costs and carbon and improve resilience through energy efficiency. Um, and that's because by delivering energy, directly to the point of use rather than through the grid. It avoids a lot of losses, a lot of financial losses, a lot of carbon losses. And by reducing the amount of energy that buildings use, because they waste 20, 30% of it typically, um, it reduces costs, improves resilience, and indeed reduces carbon footprint. So the opportunity has been there for a long time. It really stepped up significantly over the course of the last two or three years because uh, energy prices started to increase actually very rapidly at the back end of last year with the low wind, low storage um, you know, backdrop in Europe and the UK. Um, they also 
started to interest in energy efficiency started to pick up more and more as decarbonization became more more of a priority for governments and for companies. So this was already happening, Daniel, I guess, over not just over the last 10 years, but accelerating over the last two or three. But you're absolutely right that 2022 has really been a watershed, a sort of handbrake turn, that's one way of describing it, because energy prices have absolutely soared. Um, the structure of the, the European and the UK energy market has been challenged, uh, particularly given you know, the need to, to diversify away from the largest single fuel supplier to, to Europe, which is Russia. Um, so against the backdrop of limited availability, um, you know, a scramble for diversification um, of fuel sources, energy sources, we've seen energy prices escalate uh, very dramatically. And in fact, there's a sort of permanent structural shift in the way in where Europe gets its energy from. So I think a uh, very, very high price environment compared to where we've been previously makes what was already attractive incredibly important. Um, uh, and energy efficiency has never been more valuable because energy efficiency is about getting the same level of output using less energy. So um, you know, if you can do that, it's much, much more valuable in a high price environment even than it was before, and it was pretty attractive before. Um, I think two other features have come up which sit alongside that, and not, not just extremely cost efficient and important to reduce energy costs in fact in some cases existentially important for business um not just it's not just price it's also energy security um and you know we've seen the fragility of the european uh, and uk energy systems um exposed by uh, what's happened over the last six to nine months um the us has always been quite exposed because of weather events severe weather events that have meant that energy security has always been an important feature for the US. But I think Europe has really, this has been a massive wake up call. So energy efficiency can help with energy security by getting energy generated where it's needed um, and wasting less. And then the third point is decarbonization. Two, three years of real buildup and momentum and decarbonization. What a huge setback for Europe when faced with an, an energy crisis, lack of gas coming from Russia, it's had to switch back on its nuclear, sorry, its coal-fired power stations in Germany, in Ireland, and even in the UK. Um, that makes decarbonization harder. How do we get out of the problem of diversifying from Russian gas? Well, you know, yes is the answer. We need all of it. We need new nuclear power stations. We probably, we need, certainly we need new renewable power onshore, and offshore, um, and we need to diversify. We frankly, we need all of it, but how long will it take? Five, 10, 15 years to build new ma ma massive scale capacity. In the meantime, in the meantime, if the, if, if, if the feature of the European energy system and the US energy system is that so much energy is lost before it gets to the point of use, and more is lost at the point of use, then that's something we can do about straight away. Um, and you know that is a huge opportunity. It's a big problem, but it's a massive opportunity. So short answer to your question is yes, high energy price environment this year makes energy efficiency more attractive. Yeah, so can you just give some couple of examples of the investments you, you've already made? Um, I'm just sort of quite curious whether SDL sort of merely provides money as an investment or actually you've got a more hands-on role. So um, we we both we both make investments in existing operating assets, but we also help to create, develop, and um, invest in new solutions 
uh, too, and to give a couple of examples of that. Um, one example is that um, we've uh, invested in a, a major energy gener on-site energy generating facility um, or series of facilities in um, Indiana. Uh, so there is a that's sort of the, one of the largest uh, areas for steel production in the United States. Uh, very large steel mills, blast furnaces, um, and the uh, investments that we've made there. Uh, for the most part, take waste gases from the steel mills. And instead of those gases, the waste gases, um, you know, creating pollution, instead we're using those, we're re actually recycling them into useful energy, that is power and steam back to the steel mills. So that's on-site energy generation or co-generation, very largely driven by waste gases and a sort of more like energy recycling. So that's a really exciting part of our story, investing in on-site generation, particularly when the fuel is either free or um, is, uh, is capturing waste gas or waste heat. Um, other examples, we've made investments in existing operating assets in the UK. We did a new deal this summer where we've signed um, an agreement to acquire all of the on-site renewable energy generation that's serving United Utilities around the country. So that's mostly solar with some other renewables direct, connected directly to their facilities. So those are a couple of examples of where we're investing in on-site energy generation that's delivering sort of lower cost, lower carbon, more reliable energy services directly to the end customer. We also have invested in uh, energy conservation projects like LED, that is um, you know, energy efficient lighting, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, invest, investing in existing contracts. So that's the first part of your question, um, which is yes, we invest in existing projects that are working every day, saving energy, saving cost and saving carbon for customers. And we're owning those projects for their contracted revenues. But we're also, through SEED, investing in projects that can be delivered quickly to meet our income generation and dividend targets, but that can make a big difference. So could a couple of good examples there, we have a framework uh, development um, program in the UK where we're building out fast charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. Um, our big customers are the likes of BP Pulse, who are charge point operators. And our investment involves, uh, to the point that you made, actually sort of proactively working with our um, development partner to identify sites around the country that could work well for fast charging infrastructure, delivering those sites as a service to BP, Pulse and other uh, charge point operators over a long-term period. Um, our revenue stream becomes a contract for the, with those counterparties to deliver the infrastructure as a service for them. The rationale is that we have a combination of the location and the infrastructure that we make available to them so that they can sell electrons to their customers. So it's a very neat division uh, you know, of, the, of the business model between ourselves and the charge point operators. Well, brilliant. Well, Jonathan Maxwell from SDCL Energy Efficiency Income Trust, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jonathan Maxwell talking to Dan, and we're going to talk portfolios now because the volatility that markets have experienced over the last six months have made investors' jobs really tricky. And Invesco have put out a note about how to position your portfolio for the rest of the year, Dan. Yeah, I mean, they do, do these regular sort of looks at asset allocation. And um, while it's not, you know, 
it's certainly not designed to be um, prescriptive guide. This is exactly what you should do. It's, it's more about to, you know, to get you thinking about um, is your portfolio right for the current conditions? Of course, you know, earlier on the podcast, we we're talking about how central banks are pushing up rates. Um, and, you know, Vesco believes we're now in sort of what they call a contraction phase of the cycle. So um, we've got quantitative tightening going on, um, you know, changes in monetary policy. And it just sort of suggests that time's going to be a lot harder for investors, certainly um, you know, in the coming months. And we, you know, we've already had a very difficult year. Um, unfortunately, it seems there's a bit more um, tough times to go, uh, you know, potentially as we move into 2023. And I just think in this situation, history suggests that having exposure to more defensive assets might make sense, particularly if we're facing a period of stagflation, which is high inflation and low to no economic growth. So there is a risk that we'll get downgrades to earnings forecasts for stocks. So really, I think that the ones that would be less susceptible to this trend would be businesses that provide goods and services in demand, no matter the economic backdrop. And it's these sort of stocks which fall under the category of defensive um, equities. Just think things like um, tobacco and utilities, um, sort of safety specialists and so on. So Invesco is sort of saying that it believes that asset returns could actually be quite limited for the next 12 months, but its preferred places to look at the moment would be Chinese stocks, um, continental Europe real estate, emerging market government bonds and cash. Now, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast may think, well, I'm certainly not brave enough to, to look at most of those areas. Well, you can get exposure through funds, um, investment trusts or exchange-traded funds. Um, but I think, yeah, if you're not comfortable and you don't understand the dynamics for those markets, then um, you either would need to do a lot of research or, or perhaps rethink your, your plans. But I'd just say that China is particularly interesting from that list because next month we'll get the party congress. And there's lots of people saying that we actually could see lots of pro-growth policies announced by the Chinese government ahead of that event. So um, one might think that that could encourage more investors to reassess Chinese stocks because in recent years, that sort of area of the market's been hit by greater regulatory interference, slowing economic growth. So perhaps if there's going to be more pro-growth policies, um, that might sort of turn investor attention back to this market. Um, and certainly, I, as, you know, I've spoken to people who run Chinese um, funds, they're becoming a lot more optimistic. As for real estate, history just suggests this asset class does well in times of stagflation, you know, the offer income, and also you know, in times of inflation, you should see some growth in rental income and dividends. It's really important to make a clear distinction between defensive and defence stocks because uh, I had to ask for clarity this morning when I was asked about defence stocks, which were up this morning. Obviously, uh, we had news coming out of Russia about the situation in Ukraine. So we saw those rise this morning. And there are signs, Dan, that there are some stocks that were out of favour now coming back into favour. Let's talk travel uh, a couple of weeks ago, do you remember we were talking about cruises? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you told me that I would save money if I moved out of my house and lived on a cruise <laughs> liner. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, it was a story in the weekend papers um, that did suggest just that, that uh, taking a cruise will be less expensive than staying in your own home. I did attach a rather large health warning to that story, by the way, but... 
Cruise line stocks were the top risers of the S&P 500 last week. And this week, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that that is because everybody (laughs) who buys stocks on the S&P 500 was listening to this podcast, although I'm sure many (laughs) of them do. Um, But uh, this week, we have seen travel stocks on the up after an up beat update from TUI. Now, the holiday company said it expects to return to profit later this year, which is pretty good going when you consider all the disruption that we saw at Easter, the May half term, and of course, um, issues with, with summer with cancellations. And it has said that it's got elevated disruption costs, about £66 million it's cost it. But Considering we've been talking about inflation, we've been talking about consumers cutting back, summer selling prices were up 18%, it said, compared to summer 19. And winter sun prices are looking 26% higher compared to the same period in 2019. Bookings have been at 91% of 2019 levels, with the UK, Germany and Netherlands all above pre-pandemic levels. Uh, And we saw lots of travel stocks up yesterday on that news. Uh, As people sort of really mull over what it is consumers are willing and able to pay for. And I suppose, as with everything that we've been talking about today, what is true for right now might not necessarily be true six, 12 months down the line because people's situations change. And of course, that cushion that they might have had coming out of COVID, lots of people were lucky enough to get lockdown savings because they weren't spending it on anything else, not been able to get away for absolutely ages. And for them, the opportunity to have a foreign holiday with family and friends, it has been absolutely priceless. So they've been willing to pay. But for how long, Dan? Well, it's like during the lockdowns, people were very much into buying sort of material goods. Um, as we came out of that, I think, you know, certainly the tail end of 2021, the sort of the shift towards experiences people want to realizing that they they missed the freedom to be able to get out and about now we've seen profit warnings from made.com and dfs people aren't buying sofas uh certainly not into the, the level they were before a couple of years ago you know so that would that would sort of play to the expectation that, that people looking at experiences but you're right is the next stage in this sort of um sort of natural evolution of, of these trends that actually can't you know lots of families saying we, we do want to go on holiday but can we afford it maybe we want to go somewhere cheaper um and i think there'll be you know someone like tui offering sort of um package holidays to uh, you know cheap and cheerful places in in the mediterranean they might actually still do okay um certainly if you, you know, look at something like jet two as well they've got this reputation for sort of more affordable holidays um but you know, I guess it's how long you know if we get a recession. How long will it last? And you know, and, and if energy prices or you know, um, I know that obviously that they're causing a lot of problem with households at the moment. But if we get um, ongoing inflation elsewhere, you know, how much money is left in that pocket for people to still actually be able to keep buying um, holidays to the same extent they have been recently? I tell you what, there does seem money left in people's pockets for though. What's that? Athleisure wear. Oh, 
<laughs> trainers, expensive trainers, and all that sort of stuff. Sportswear has just managed really to sort of defy the odds um, because people obviously have been, um, when they were working from home, they were more casual and they, they've sort of continued that. And the, the reason I brought that up is because there's been some big news from the city this week, a very controversial figure, shall we say, has um, stepped away from the board of Fraser's group. Mike Ashley, of course, started Sports Direct. It was listed uh, on the Stock Exchange in 2007. And and since then, he's had an interesting relationship with the city, Dan. Uh, well, yeah, to put, to put it mildly, um, certainly not one to, that welcomes being asked questions about the finances or, or the sort of the operations of a business. I think he'd rather just um, focus on trying to sell, uh, you know, polo shirts and um, tennis rackets than having to answer questions to journalists and um, sort of analysts and, and shareholders. But, um, you know, he's a right character and you know, the fact is he's been a tremendous um, success, a real standout figure in the retail sector Um always paying attention to, you know, costs, never wants to sort of uh, spend more money than he has to. Um, it's been a real vulture when you've got, uh, you know, rival um, retail companies in problems. You know, if something goes into administration, it's been Mike Ashley's been waiting there with his checkbook to buy, try and buy it as cheap as possible or even just to buy the brands. Um, Didn't it feel yeah. to you for a little while, Dan, that he was kind of playing almost a game of Monopoly, and he had the high street spread out on his Monopoly board and there were a whole load of names on there. And he was just, as you say, keeping an eye out for when they might fall into trouble. And I'm thinking particularly about Debenhams because he really, really wanted Debenhams and never was able to, to quite get that deal across the line. And now, of course, on the high street, Debenhams is no more. No, obviously, it's there's a lot of the a lot of the things he was looking at was um, either you know complicated because there's um, lots of property that perhaps he didn't want, um, which sort of muddies the the opportunities. But uh, but in in generally, he has been you know, very good at buying most of the stuff he wants. Uh, but now. You know, interesting. If you if you look at what the you know, Fraser's is group, you know, so it was called Sports Stretch for a very long time, and then the parent company changed it to Fraser's. And I think as, as part of that sort of transition, you should look at what the business has been doing. It's much more um, investment in sort of upmarket brands. I mean, you know, posher shops. It's it's simply not just about having the flagship Sports Direct. And of course, Mike Ashley's son-in-law is now the new CEO of the business. Um, He's very much. He had a strange job title. It's head of elevation, which is a. Um, <laughs> That's a great title. <laughs> pretty, pretty rubbish title, isn't it? So um, I think he would obviously prefer CEO, which he's got now. It, it, it was all about trying to take this business a bit more up market, and that, actually, that's really clever because that's where there's been tremendous sales growth. Of course, the company make much bigger profit margins, so it's got the the parlor my sell them cheap sort of sports direct bit. Um, but also now it's much broader business and kind of feels like a natural time for, for Mike Ashley to be stepping back. But um, he's just one of those characters that you think he's still going to have his foot in the door somehow. You know, he's, he's got an advisory consulting role with the business and 
Of course, he's and still got a family. huge stake in the business well, as well, hasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, when you you know you have the son-in-law over for Sunday dinner, you you know damn well what they'll be talking about is um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the minute figures of uh, you know how many how many pairs of white socks have they sold this week in Sports Direct and stuff. So it'd be very so, interesting to be a fly on the wall at that those particular dinner parties. Um, yeah. yeah, I can imagine that there has been some. Some strong words at certain points um, when uh, when things have been going wrong. But um, it, it was interesting to see that shares were down ever so slightly on the news. Um, and it's it's also been interesting to see that how Fraser's has been relatively robust this year. You know, we, we've seen stock markets fall. We've seen retailers really struggle. But I was looking at um, the share price performance since the start of the year, and it is just still in positive territory, only just, but it is still in positive territory. So it's going to be really interesting to keep an eye on how the business progresses and um, and what it might buy up next. Yeah, Absolutely. So that's it for this week's podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe uh, so you don't miss an episode. It would be great if you could leave us a review and tell all your friends about the podcast. Like I say, we do want to hear from you. Drop us an email, podcast at ajbell.co.uk. On next week's show, I'll be talking to the manager of the AVI Japan Opportunity Trust about the mood of Japanese companies. The manager's just got back from a trip to Tokyo, so make sure you tune in next week to hear what he has to say. Until then, thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Music